As was read, um, we're going to cover the portion of the death of our Lord, um, but it's not because I'm, I'm, I'm mindful, and, and I welcome you, and, and I'm thankful for your gathering with us on this Easter Sunday, so, so we will be working our way toward, indeed, toward the resurrection, and, and we'll handle that portion at the very end of the resurrection of which we have come to celebrate this morning, but um, staying the due course prior to the resurrection, to deal with this particular passage of the effectual working of our Lord Jesus Christ in dying for each here who have professed faith in Him, to give the words of encouragement that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, died your soul to save. You see, by way of introduction... The Bible sees the cross as revealing God's power to save, not his impotence. It's important that we grasp this as we look at the death of our Lord on the cross. So again, by way of introduction, as we've gathered on this Easter to speak of resurrection, let me draw your attention to the power of the cross. Again, By way of introduction, please track with me. The Bible sees the cross as as revealing God's power to save, not his impotence. Christ did not win a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers. A mere possibility of salvation for any who might possibly, theoretically, believe but he died a real salvation for his own. The intended effects of his self-offering do in fact follow. Just because the cross was what it was. You see, it's saving power does not depend on faith being added to it. Its saving power is such that faith flows from it. The cross, as we looked last week, and we'll take a few moments here to look at together, and we'll conclude with the resurrection, the cross secured. Each one who here, whose faith rests in Christ as a soul-saving object, I wish to strengthen you, to encourage you. The cross secured full salvation and all of its fruits for you. This is why Paul can say, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the effectual work of our Lord who died that Good Friday for his people. And so, as we spoke of the cross last week, 
where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These, once again, if I could press, are not words of forgiveness that ought to provoke within us our sympathies or our condolences. Poor Jesus. But they are words of his atoning accomplishment. Father, forgive them. They are words of effectual accomplishment, not dying possibilities. Are you a Christian? Have you gathered this morning with Christians? Are you celebrating that he didn't die for someone? He died for you. The fruit of which is your faith. The prayer of forgiveness provided to the elect. And it is this sense of not divine possibilities in the death of Jesus Christ, but divine accomplishment, where we see two supernatural events occur, two supernatural phenomena immediately flow from these moments to authenticate not a theory, but an effectual accomplishment. Not that faith might be added to it, but that faith flows from it. What are these two acts in the text that speak of divine accomplishments, stamps, events that are supernatural phenomena that authenticate, indeed, the atoning accomplishment of Jesus of Nazareth? They are, if you join with me in the text, we'll look at both of them just briefly, but the stamp of approval, these moments of divine and supernatural phenomena that speak to the divine effectual accomplishment of Jesus as the Savior of the sheep. Look at verse 44 and 45, because we dealt with the previous passage last week. I'll join in verse 44, as just briefly was read for you. Look, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Now, if you look at this text in, in, in your English translation, you can look down in your footnote, and it's probably there provided for you at the bottom in the English Standard Version, the, the text that we usually use here. Um, I know it puts it in the footnote here, but what you see there is just kind of the scale of time at the death of our Lord. You'll see in the footnote that the sixth hour is noon. So the time of day is noon, and then the ninth hour in your footnote you see on the scale of time is Three o'clock. So to put together the scene of the supernatural phenomenon that authenticates the death of our Lord is darkness over the entire land between noon and three o'clock. Now, if you look at verse 45, while the sun's light failed, I would submit to you that there was darkness over the entire earth. 
Now, there have been several theories. If, if you were to look at this in church history, or you're to look at it in theological commentary, or you're to explore this in a particular study of a different type of essays and so forth, you will see that there are several theories put forward from different schools of thought how to explain what exactly happened as the Gospels report it. And if you work theory by theory, in the end, for one reason or another, scientifically speaking, this is why it was an eclipse, or it was this, and it was this time of year, and it was this moment of the day, it's this. For one reason or another, every natural theory of causation is unreliable. So for every, for every hypothesis that goes forward to say, this is very basically why it occurred. There is a, a reason that debunks that from being rather reasonable. Why? Because it's a supernatural statement. It's a supernatural event. There's a reason for the darkness. It's not happenstance. So, so why the reason? What is the reason for when it says it was now noon and, and there was darkness over the entire land, everywhere, the, the, not like a few clouds. No, the sun's light failed until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, from noon till 3. Why? And if every basic theory fails on natural grounds, then there must be a divine reason. There must be a statement that is being made in the darkness. If you would turn to Exodus 10. Second book, so we're from Genesis and we're moving to Exodus. And look at Exodus 10 just for a moment. Exodus 10 just for a moment. It's a supernatural event. But it doesn't happen in a vacuum. As many of you have enjoyed reading the Bible to, to, to see the, 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 the way in which the Old Testament corresponds to the New Testament, the New Testament corresponds to the Old Testament, how there's a unified work here of the redeeming work of God through Christ from Old and New Testaments. Somewhat if we're familiar with the text of Exodus 10, now we're not so surprised about the hour of darkness from noon till three. There's grounds for it. Theologically, there's a union here. Join with me in Exodus 10. We're going to look at the, the ninth plague there, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Look at the way that the... the, the, the the phrase that, that concludes verse 21. A darkness to be felt. Keep your finger there, but I rehearse for all of us together. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the entire land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. 
do you see the correspondence? For three days. They didn't see one another. Think about the disorienting aspect of not even being able to see one another. Again, it is a pitch darkness, and God says, to be felt. The disorientation, the sense of total loss. They can't see one another. The terror to be experienced in such pitch darkness. They didn't see one another, nor did anybody rise from his place for three days. But notice the contrast in the one work of darkness. But all the people of God, that is, all the people of Israel, had light where they lived. You see, if we were to account for the darkness at the cross, we see a biblical and theological statement being made. What we see here in Exodus is a precursor of darkness to the death of Christ. If you were to go one more chapter in Exodus, do you know what occurs next? The Lord's Passover. You see, it serves, the the judgment here, the darkness here serves as judgment that approaches the first Passover. It is a darkness to be felt. And in order to be delivered, one must be washed in blood. That is, blood is about to be shed in the event of a Passover. There is darkness in Exodus, both in judgment and in salvation. So also here in Luke, darkness descends that day. at Golgotha as an act of God's judgment. And in parallel to Exodus, innocent blood will be shed. It will be shed in judgment upon his enemies and it will be shed for deliverance to the church. In the biblical theme of Passover, you see Exodus 10 this, this darkness that is to be felt in judgment will move to Exodus 11, and it is the Lord's Passover. Blood must be shed that the Lord will pass over. It was now the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the entire land until the ninth hour, 12 till 3. The sun's light failed. Paul will tell the church at Corinth later in the New Testament, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You see, there is darkness. It's not just a natural natural element that we can simply dismiss because maybe there was an eclipse. There was a darkness to be felt because judgment was being expressed. And salvation was being made possible. For as we conclude in just a few moments, as was the cry of the Reformation, after darkness, light. 
So Paul will then say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, when I say there is judgment being expressed in the darkness and a light which is to spring forward after the darkness, we must ask ourselves who in the darkness is experiencing such judgment. Who is it that is experiencing the darkness that is to be felt? Every person in here whose faith rests upon him knows the answer. It is Christ. It is he who is being forsaken. It is he who is being judged. It is he who is being condemned. In order that all, and I speak to each in this room, in order that all who receive him through faith will never have to be forsaken, will never have to be judged, will never have to be condemned, but will pass from death unto life. The first natural phenomena, or, or supranatural phenomena occurring and the death of our Lord here, which speaks to its divine accomplishment, is a period of darkness that is to be felt for three hours. But the second, as I mentioned, there are two displays that are supernatural phenomena here which authenticate the divine accomplishment, not the divine possibility that, that, that some may be saved, but divine accomplishment he died my soul to save. Is the second piece of divine supernatural phenomena is the temple curtain being torn in two. Look at the text, if you would. Again, I press on past verse 44, but I'll begin there, but we keep moving forward to the second supernatural event in the text. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land. As Exodus says, a darkness to be felt until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, again, I, I'm not going to say anything particularly brand new to many of you here, perhaps to some. But you see here that at the moment of Jesus' death, the massive curtain, and, and don't confuse it with like the curtains at your house. This is a massive curtain assembled curtain, functioning more substantial. It would be closer to a door in its substantial structure than it would be the curtains on your front window. 
This is a massive curtain. And if you have a study Bible, you, you can just look it up and you'll see the pictures and the, and the graphics and you'll see its height. And you go to the Old Testament, see its height, see its dimensions laid out. It is a massive curtain separating the holy, the most holy, from any level of common. Any measure of holy and lacking utter holiness in God's glory. It was a division there between this and God. It was a massive curtain. And it was ripped right down the center. The grammar, and and we don't want to get far off into the weeds, but I think it would be somewhat helpful to notice the grammar that says the temple was torn in the passive voice is um, if you're to get into Greek grammar, and and there's a category for for this, particularly in the Gospels, and it's known as a divine passive or what what a a grammar would call a uh, theological passive. That is, each time where you see a divine passive or a theological passive, the only intended subject of that could be God. Where you'll see it, just to give you a a small piece of fruit or example for you to kind of wrap your mind around the idea here of who's responsible for tearing the temple curtain. It wasn't a rabble rouser. It wasn't somebody in haste wanting to make a statement. It's a divine passive or a theological passive. In other words, God is responsible for this phenomenon. God tore the temple curtain. If you were to go to Matthew 5 through 7 and you were to read in the Beatitudes section, right, they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. Who's given the earth and who is doing the comforting? God is doing it. That too is a good example of divine passive. They will receive from him. Who's responsible in this moment of authentication of the death of our Lord? That indeed it has been accomplished sufficiently, a divine passive. God is authenticating it through the tearing of the curtain. What is the primary point in the symbolism of the divine curtain being torn? Again, if we root ourselves in the Old Testament text, we see here Christ is the perfect atoning sacrifice. That's the implication, that's the truth that emerges. He is a sufficient Savior. Even the weakest faith clings to a sovereign Lord. He is sufficient. As we say, He is alive. Heaven's gates are open wide. He's alive. He's alive. That's the statement of the temple being torn. The atoning sacrifice is sufficient. A brief word on the Day of Atonement. If I were to make clear just how do we get the fact that indeed Jesus here, the divine statement is that he is a sufficient sacrifice once and for all, for all whose faith does truly rest upon him. Only the high priest. And you recall a few years ago we went through the book of Hebrews together and we dealt with the sacrificial system how it's rooted in Leviticus and the commentary in Hebrews, I summarize for you here, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for himself and for those of the people. This was done one day a year on Yom Kippur. But here, 
in the divine passive, God himself tears the curtain to the temple. What is its statement? That all who rest in Christ as their perfect, spotless, atoning lamb have access to God through him. All have access. This further fulfills the words of John the Baptist we preached many chapters ago, many moons ago at this point. But I know you haven't forgot it. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so also, God does make clear He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so I read for you once more, and while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And in the divine accomplishment, the text continues, we find yet another, just like last week, we find yet another staggering example. And I say to you, it ought to be to us a staggering example of the sovereign grace of God in the immediate text. The shepherd is laying his life down for the sheep. And the sheep hear his voice. He knows them and he calls them by name. He says to us, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look at the staggering example of the sovereign grace of God. Verse 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, do you see what happened to him? He praised God. Look at his confession. Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. And all the acquaintances with the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. But I draw your attention to the centurion. You see, before, as he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We had one man rise up as a sheep of his pasture. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there railed at him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Save us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. You see, the sovereign grace is penetrating the heart of the murderer. It's the fruit of the Savior's work. If your faith does indeed rest in Christ alone at this moment, so also are you. 
the fruit of his labors. He died your soul to save. And he said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, irrevocably, I say to you, today, this very day, I am dying, and so are you. You will be with me where I go, and that indeed will be in my kingdom. You will be with me in paradise. And so we move from the extortioner of the criminal on the cross, an extortioner and a murderer. Uh, some even say, uh, performed, lived his life uh, as a, an assassin. I can't authenticate that. Nonetheless, those are words that people banter about, that he's under capital punishment, that perhaps by extortion and murderer, indeed, even living a life as an assassin, he is here dying under the execution of the Romans. And yet you see the sovereign grace of God effectually calling him. And now it moves from a murderer to a centurion soldier. To give you a little piece on who the centurion is, again, we don't know his name. We don't know his family. We don't know his background. As Luke so writes so often with characters who serve the overall plot to instruct and to teach and to lead us to truth, here also all we know about him is what's necessary. He was a blue-collar Roman soldier who was by all requirements of life on the job, a brutal and hardened individual. You see, it's important that we wrap our mind around who he was by way of occupation and what he saw, what he sensed and what he felt, what he inflicted and how he had lived. He had inflicted death through many ways and means throughout the course of his job that would be unto us in this context unconscionable. To see what he saw, to do what he has done, would be unto us unconscionable. But I am the good shepherd. And I lay my life down for my sheep. Of all kinds of sinners. No sin too great. No sin too wicked. But we have to ask, how then did he move in these moments? If he, if he has inflicted death so often and overseen the scenes of a crucifixion many times over, how did he at this moment come to believe? How did he at this moment say, indeed, I'm praising God. Certainly this man that I see dying here not all the men, this man, I see to be innocent. How is it? Notice the text so carefully, just as Luke wrote it. Look at verse 46 and 47. Notice, how did he come to believe? I'm the good shepherd. All my sheep hear my voice. I call them by name. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, 
standing in proximity. He's there to observe and see to ensure death comes. So he's here at the foot of the cross. And he hears our Lord calling out. And he heard what was said. Father. Right? Because Luke says he cried out. He called out with a loud voice. A voice that could be heard. Who was standing? Verse 47. A centurion was standing there. And all my sheep hear my voice. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Out loud. Look at at how the text works. Now. Now. Look at its effect. Now. Remember, this is occurring now. When the centurion saw what had taken place, He saw it. He heard it. He was there. Is that random? He saw him die. And he heard his prayer. With shame of his passion. He praised God for what he had heard and for what he had saw. Certainly, He confesses, in other words, without a doubt. This man was innocent of all charges. You see, he heard the effectual words of Jesus as he stood by watching him die in faith. Again, please don't brush over. This is a miracle of sovereign grace. Reaching even the hardest of hearts. Who is it that you think is beyond the call of redemption? Who is it in your mind, in your family, or in your web of relationships and colleagues that is beyond the pale of redeeming grace? Who is it that is in this neighborhood? that will never have a chance to respond to the gospel. They're too far gone. Who lives such a lifestyle that you deem them incapable of hearing the master's call? The centurion had witnessed countless people die. And again, whether he's been on the job five years, he's been on the job two years, or he's been on the job 12 years, he has seen death. He has heard many people, if not by his own experience and his own hand, he has heard many people breathe their last. But he has never seen someone die like this. One author comments this way, the centurion saw the tenderness of Jesus, despite his terror. This must have pierced right through his hardness. The beauty of Jesus in his death must have flooded 
the centurion's darkness with great light. Okay, and this is why I say to you, the words of Jesus on the cross are not words of a dying man intended to evoke your sympathies or your condolences. They are words intended by him to be to his own a revelation of his atoning accomplishment. In my place, condemned he stood. He died my soul to save. Do you, gathered with us this morning, here in this congregation at this very moment, do you see, do you individual, each individual, do you see how he died? Again, how did the centurion say, I'm going to praise God. This is the Savior. Certainly this man, not him and him, but this man right here, out of all of them, this man died innocently, and he died for me. How did he come to say that? Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit. But your soul has saved. And the faith that you now have in him is the fruit that flows from a cross where he effectually laid down his life for you. If you didn't, you wouldn't. Do you see how he died? Do you hear the words of our Lord as he dies faithful and obedient to the Father for you? Or does it fall on deaf ears? Do you look at the text with blind eyes? If you hear his voice today, Scripture says, if you hear it right now for the very first time, Scripture says, if you today hear his voice right now for the very first time, I thought maybe he died, but I never thought he died for me. I never thought that the faith that I have in my soul is a fruit that is ripped up in me by the power of the Spirit of God because he, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, died for me. Nobody else, for me. I never thought that before. I think it now. That he is crying out to you, repent and believe. Put your faith on him as a soul-saving object. On Christ's solid rock I stand. No other ground. Everything else is sinking sand. Every bit of it. Today, the writer of Hebrews says to you, 
if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in rebellion. Paul concludes the Roman church, Romans 8, 34. Please hear this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Hear this, the way the argument of the text works, and this is why you came this morning. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that. who was raised. He's alive. He's alive. Heaven's gates are indeed opened wide. And if you never at this point thought it was for you that they were opened wide, and today you hear his voice, repent and believe and receive life. Would you please stand as we conclude our time together and keep your Bible open. I'd like to read the concluding story of what occurred that day and the day following. I'll begin in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, but note carefully, he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and their action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I remember the time frame between noon and three and then following three o'clock. He needs to get this burial in before Sabbath starts. So Joseph is on the move. He goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation And the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you 
while he was still in Galilee. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your son.